Chapter Twelve, Part One of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Twelve, Part One. The Horn of the Hunter. The dusky night rides down the sky and ushers in the morn. The hounds all join in glorious cry. The huntsman wins his horn. Leon said our house reminded him of the mourner's bench before any one had come through. He said it was so deadly, with Sally and Shelley away, that he had a big notion to marry Susie Fall and bring her over to liven things up a little. Mother said she thought that would be a good idea, and Leon started in the direction of Falls, but he only went as far as Deems. When he came back, he had a great story to tell about dogs chasing their sheep and foxes taking their geese. Father said sheep were only safe behind securely closed doors, especially in winter, and geese also. Leon said every one hadn't as big a barn as ours, and father said there was nothing to prevent any man from building the sized barn he needed to shelter his creatures in safety and comfort, if he wanted to dig in and earn the money to put it up. There was no answer to that, and Mr. Leon didn't try to make any. Mostly he said something to keep on talking, but sometimes he saw when he had better quit. I was having a good time myself. Of course, when the fever was the worst, and when I never had been sick before, it was pretty bad. But as soon as I could breathe all right, there was no pain to speak of, and every one was so good to me. I could have Bobby on the footboard of my bed as long as I wanted him, and he would crow whenever I told him to. I kept Grace Greenwood beside me, and spoiled her dress, making her take some of each dose of medicine I did. But Shelley wrote that she was saving goods, and she would make her another as soon as she came home. I made mother put red flannel on Grace's chest and around her neck, until I could hardly find her mouth when she had to take her medicine. But she swallowed it down all right, or she got her nose held until she did. She was not nearly so sick as I was, though. We both grew better together, and when Doctor Fenner brought me candy, she had her share. When I began to get well, it was lovely, such toast, chicken broth, and squirrels as mother always had. I even got the chicken liver, oranges, and all of them gave me everything they had that I wanted. I must almost have died to make them act like that. Laddie and father would take me wrapped up in blankets and hold me to rest my back. Father would rock me and sing about young Johnny, just as he had when I was little. We always laughed at it. We knew it was a fool song, but we liked it. The tune was smooth and sleepy-like, and the words went. One day, young Johnny he did go, way down in the meadow for to mow. The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. He scarcely had mowed twice round the field, when a pesky sarpent bit him on the heel. The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. He threw the scythe upon the ground and shut his eyes and looked all around. The two dinanicti, licked two dinanicti, naughty o. He took the sarpent in his hand and then ran home to Molly Bland. The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. Oh, Molly dear, and don't you see this pesky sarpent that bit me? The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. Oh, Johnny dear, why did you go way down in the meadow for to mow? The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. Oh, Molly dear, I thought you knowed twas Daddy's grass and it must be mowed. The two dinanicti, two dinanicti, naughty o. Now all young men a warning take, and don't get bit by a rattlesnake. 
Le tutinanicti, tutinanicti, nadio. All of them told me stories, read to me, and Frank, one of my big gone-away brothers, sent me the prettiest little book. It had a green cover with gold on the back, and it was full of stories and poems, not so very hard, because I could read every one of them, with help on a few words. The piece I liked best was poetry. If it hadn't been for that, I'm afraid, I was having such a good time, I'd have lain there until I forgot how to walk, with all of them trying to see who could be nicest to me. The ones who really could were Laddie and the Princess, except Mother. Laddie lifted me most carefully. The Princess told the best stories. But after all, if the burning and choking grew so bad I could scarcely stand it, Mother could lay her hand on my head and say, Poor child, in a way that made me work to keep on breathing. Maybe I only thought I loved Laddie best. I guess if I had been forced to take my choice when I had the fever, I'd have stuck pretty tight to Mother. Even Dr. Fenner said if I pulled through, she'd have to make me. I might have been lying there yet, if it hadn't been for the book Frank sent me, with a poetry piece in it. It began, Somewhere on a sunny bank, buttercups are bright. Somewhere mid the frozen grass, peeps the daisy white. I read that so often I could repeat it quite as well with the book shut as open. And every time I read it, I wanted outdoors worse. In one place it ran, Welcome, yellow buttercups. Welcome, daisies white. Ye are in my spirit, vision day delight. Coming in the springtime of sunny hours to tell, Speaking to our hearts of him who doeth all things well. That piece helped me out of bed, And the blue gander screaming opened the door. It was funny about it, too. I don't know why it worked on me that way. It just kept singing in my heart all day, And I could shut my eyes and go to sleep Seeing buttercups in a gold sheet all over our big hill, although there never was a single one there, and meadows full of daisies, which were things father said were a pest he couldn't tolerate because they spread so, and he grubbed up every one he found. Yet that piece filled our meadow until I imagined I could roll on daisies. They might be a pest to farmers, but sheets of them were pretty good if you were burning with fever. Between the buttercups and the daisies, I left the bed with a light head and wobbly legs, of course, I wasn't an idiot. I knew when I looked from our south window exactly what was to be seen. The person who wrote that piece was the idiot. It sang and sounded pretty, and it pulled you up and pushed you out. But really, it was a fool thing, as I very well knew. I couldn't imagine daisies peeping through frozen grass. Any baby should have known they bloomed in July. Skunk cabbage always came first, and hepatica. If I had looked from any of our windows and seen daisies and buttercups in March— I'd have fallen over with the shock. I knew there would be frozen brown earth, last year's dead leaves, caved-in apple and potato holes, the cabbage row almost gone, puddles of water and mud everywhere, and I would hear geese scream and hens sing. And yet that poem kept pulling and pulling, and I was happy as a queen. I wondered if they were for sure. Mother had doubts. The day I was wrapped in shawls and might sit an hour in the sun on the top board of the back fence, where I could see the barn, the orchard, the creek, and the meadow, as you never could in summer because of the leaves. I wasn't looking for buttercups and daisies, either. I mighty well knew there wouldn't be any. But the sun was there. A little taste of willow, oak, and maple was in the air. You could see the buds growing fat, too, and you could smell them. If you opened your eyes and looked in any direction, you could see blue sky, big ragged white clouds, bare trees, muddy earth with grassy patches, 
and white spots on the shady sides where unmelted snow made the icy feel in the air, even when the sun shone. You couldn't hear yourself think for the clatter of the turkeys, ganders, roosters, hens, and everything that had a voice. I was so crazy with it, I could scarcely hang to the fence. I wanted to get down and scrape my wings like the gobbler, and scream louder than the gander, and crow oftener than the rooster. There was everything all mud and ice. They would have frozen if they hadn't been put in a house at night, and starved if they hadn't been fed. They were not at the place where they could hunt and scratch, and not pay any attention to feeding time, because of being so bursting full. They had no nests and babies to rejoice over. But there they were, and so was I. Buttercups and daisies be hanged. Ice and mud, really. But if you breathe that air, and shut your eyes, north you could see blue flags, scarlet lilies, buttercups, cattails, and redbirds sailing over them. East there would be apple-bloom and soft grass, cowslips and bubbling water, robins, thrushes, and bluebirds. And south, waving corn with wild rose and alder borders, and sparrows, and larks on every fence-rider. Right there I got that daisy thing figured out. It wasn't that there were, or ever would be, daisies and buttercups among the frozen grass. But it was forever and always that when this feel came into the air, you knew they were coming. That was what ailed the gander and the gobbler. They hadn't a thing to be thankful for yet. But something inside them was swelling and pushing because of what was coming. I felt exactly as they did, because I wanted to act the same way. "'but I'd been sick enough to know "'that I'd better be thankful for the chance "'to sit on the fence "'and think about buttercups and daisies. "'Really, one old brown and purple skunk cabbage "'with a half-frozen bee buzzing over it, "'or a few forlorn little spring beauties "'would have set me wild. "'And when a lark really did go over, "'away up high, "'and a dove began to coo in the orchard, "'if Laddie hadn't come for me, "'I would have fallen from the fence. "'I simply had to get well, "'and quickly, too.' for the wonderful time was beginning. It was all very well to lie in bed when there was nothing else to do, and everyone would pet me and give me things. But here was maple syrup time, right at the door, and the sugar camp most fun alive. Here was all the neighborhood crazy mad at the foxes, and planning a great chase covering a circuit of miles before the ground thawed. Here was Easter, and all the children coming, except Shelley. Again, it would cost too much for only one day." and with everything beginning to hum, I found out there would be more amusement outdoors than inside. That was how I came to study out the daisy piece. There was nothing in the silly, untrue lines. The pull and tug was in what they made you think of. I was still so weak I had to take a nap every day, so I wasn't sleepy as early at night. And I heard father and mother talk over a lot of things before they went to bed. After they mentioned it, I remembered that we hadn't received nearly so many letters from Shelley lately, and Mother seldom found time to read them aloud during the day, and forgot, or her eyes were tired at night. "'Are you worrying about Shelley?' asked Father one night. "'Yes, I am,' answered Mother. "'What do you think is the trouble?' "'I'm afraid things are not coming out with Mr. Paget as she hoped.' "'If they don't, she is going to be unhappy?' That's putting it mildly. Well, I was doubtful in the beginning. Now, hold on, said Mother. So was I, but what are you going to do? I can't go through the world with my girls and meet men for them. I trained them just as carefully as possible before I started them out. That was all I could do. Shelley knows when a man appears clean, decent, and likable. She knows when his calling is respectable. She knows when his speech is proper, 
his manners correct, and his ways attractive. She found this man all of these things, and she liked him accordingly. At Christmas she told me about it freely. Have you any idea how far the thing has gone? She said then that she had seen him twice a week for two months. He seemed very fond of her. He had told her he cared more for her than any girl he ever had met. And he had asked her to come here this summer and pay us a visit, so she wanted to know if he might. Of course you told her yes. Certainly I told her yes. I wish now we'd saved money, and you'd gone to visit her, and met him when she first wrote of him. You could have found out who and what he was, and with your experience you might have pointed out signs that would have helped her to see before it was too late. What do you think is the trouble? I wish I knew. She simply is failing to mention him in her letters. All the joy of living has dropped from them. She merely writes about her work, and now she is beginning to complain of homesickness, and to say that she doesn't know how to endure the city any longer. There's something wrong. Had I better go? Too late, said Mother, and I could hear her throat go wrong, and the choke come into her voice. She is deeply in love with him. He hasn't found in her what he desires. Probably he is not coming any more. What could you do? I could go and see if there is anything I could do. She may not want you. I'll write her tomorrow, and suggest that you or Laddie pay her a visit, and learn what she thinks. All right, said Father. He kissed her and went to sleep. But Mother was awake yet, and she got up, and stood looking down at the church and the two little white gravestones she could see from her window, until I thought she would freeze. And she did nearly, for her hands were cold, and the tears falling when she examined my covers, and felt my face and hands before she went to bed. My, but the mother of a family like ours is never short of a lot of things to think of. I had a new one myself. Now what do you suppose there was about that man? Of course, after having lived all her life with father and laddie, Shelley would know how a man should look, and act to be right. And this one must have been right to make her bloom out in winter, the way other things do in spring. And now what could be wrong? Maybe city girls were prettier than Shelley. But all women were made alike on the outside, and that was as far as you could see. You couldn't find out whether they had pure blood, true hearts, or clean souls. No girl could be so very much prettier than Shelley. They simply were not made that way. She knew how to behave. She had it beaten into her, like all of us. And she knew her books, what our schools could teach her, and Groveville, and Lucy, who had city chances for years. And there never was a day at our house when books and papers were not read and discussed, and your spelling was hammered into you standing in rows against the wall, and memory tests. What on earth could be the matter with Shelley, that a man who could make her look and act as she did at Christmas, would now make her unhappy? Sometimes I wanted to be grown up dreadfully, and again, times like that, I wished my bed could stay in Mother's room, and I could creep behind Father's paper, and go to sleep between his coat and vest, and have him warm my feet in his hands forever. This world was too much for me. I never worked and worried in all my life as I had over Laddie and the Princess. And Laddie said I, myself, never would know how I had helped him. Of course nothing was settled. He had to try to make her love him by teaching her how lovable he was. We knew because we always had known him. But she was a stranger and had to learn. It was mighty fine for him that he could force his way past the dogs, Thomas, the other men, her half-crazy father, and through the locked door, and go there to try to make her see, on Sunday nights, and weekdays, every single chance he could invent, 
and he could think up more reasons for going to Pryor's than Mother could for putting out an extra wash. Now just as I got settled a little about him, and we could see they really wanted him there, at least the princess and her mother did, and Mr. Pryor must have been fairly decent, or Laddie never would have gone, and the princess came to our house to bring me things to eat, and ask how Mother was, and once to learn how she embroidered Sally's wedding chemise, and social things like that. And when Father acted as if he liked her so much, he hadn't a word to say, and Mother seemed to begin to feel as if Laddie and the princess could be trusted to fix it up about God, and the old mystery didn't matter after all. Why, here Shelley popped up with another mystery, and it belonged to us. But whatever ailed that man, I couldn't possibly think. It had got to be him, for Shelley was so all right at Christmas, it made her look that pretty we hardly knew her. I was thinking about her until I scarcely could study my lessons, so I could recite to Laddie at night, and not fall so far behind at school. Miss Amelia offered to hear me, but I just begged Laddie, and Father could see that he taught me fifty things in a lesson that you could tell to look at Miss Amelia she never knew. Why, he couldn't hear me read. We charged upon a flock of geese, and put them all to flight, except one sturdy gander that thought to show us fight without teaching me that the oldest picture in all the world was made of a row of geese, some of which were kinds we had then. The earth didn't seem so old when you thought of that. And how a flock of geese once wakened an army and saved a city. And how far wild geese could fly without alighting and migration. And everything you could think of about geese. Only he didn't know why eating the same grass made feathers on geese and wool on sheep. Anyway, Miss Amelia never told you a word but what was in the book, and how to read and spell it. May said that Father was very much disappointed in her, and he was never going to hire another teacher until he met and talked with her, no matter what kind of letters she could send. He was not going to help her get a summer school. And oh, my soul, I hope no one does, for if they do I have to go, and I'd rather die than to go to school in the summer." Leon came in about that time with more fox stories. Been in Jacob Hood's chicken house and taken his best dorking rooster. And father said it was time to do something. He never said a word so long as they took deems, except they should have barn room for their geese. But when anything was the matter at Hood's, father and mother started doing something the instant they heard of it. So father and Laddie rode around the neighborhood and talked it over. And the next night they had a meeting at our schoolhouse. Men for miles came, and they planned a regular old-fashioned fox chase, and everyone was wild about it. Laddie told it at Pryor's, and the princess wanted to go. She asked to go with him, and if you please, Mr. Pryor wanted to go too, and there Thomas. They attended the meeting to tell how people chase foxes in England, where they seemed to hunt them most of the time. Father said, Thank God for even a fox chase. "'if it will bring Mr. Pryor among his neighbors "'and help him to act sensibly. "'They are going away fifteen miles or farther "'and form a big circle of men from all directions, "'some walking in a line, "'and others riding to bring back any foxes that escape. "'And with dogs and guns, "'they are going to rout out every one they can find "'and kill them so they won't take the geese, "'little pigs, lambs, and Hood's dorking rooster. "'Laddie had a horn that Mr. Pryor gave him, when he told him this country was showing signs of becoming civilized at last. But Leon grinned, and said he'd beat that. Then, when you wanted him, he was in the woodhouse loft at work. But father said he couldn't get into mischief there. 
He should have seen that churn when it was full of wedding breakfast. We ate for a week afterward, until things were all molded, and we didn't dare any more. One night I begged so hard, and promised so faithfully he trusted me. He often did, after I didn't tell about the station. And I went to the loft with him, and watched him work an hour. He had a hollow limb, about six inches through, and fourteen long. He had cut and burned it to a mere shell, and then he had scraped it with glass inside and out, until it shone like polished horn. He had shaved the wool from a piece of sheepskin, soaked, stretched, and dried it, and then fitted it over one end of the drum-like thing he had made, and tacked and bound it in a little groove at the edge. He put the skin on damp, so he could stretch it tight. Then he punched a tiny hole in the middle, and pulled through it, down inside the drum, a sheepskin thong rolled in resin, with a knot big enough to hold it, and not tear the head. Then he took it under his arm, and we slipped across the orchard below the station, and went into the hollow and tried it. It worked. I almost fell dead with the first frightful sound. It just bellowed and roared. In only a little while he found different ways to make it sound by the manner of working the tongue. A long, steady, even pull got that kind of a roar. A short, quick one made it bark. A pull half the length of the thon, a pause and another pull, made it sound like a bark and a yelp. To pull hard and quick made it go louder, and soft and easy made it whine. Before he had tried it ten minutes, he could do fifty things with it that would almost scare the livers out of those nasty old foxes that were taking everyone's geese, dorking roosters, and even baby lambs and pigs. Of course people couldn't stand that. Something had to be done. Even in the Bible it says, Beware of the little foxes that spoil the vines. And geese, especially blue ones, dorking roosters, lambs, and pigs, were much more valuable than mere vines. So Leon made that awful thing to scare the foxes from their holes. That's in the Bible, too. About the holes, I mean, not the scaring. I wanted Leon to slip in the back door and make the dumbbell. That's what he called it. If I had been naming it, I would have called it the Thunderbell. Go, but he wouldn't. He said he didn't propose to work as he had, and then have someone find out and fix one like it. He said he wouldn't let it make a sound until the night before the chase, and then he'd raise the dead. I don't know about the dead, but it was true of the living. Father went a foot above his chair and cried, Whoopee! All of us, even I, when I was waiting for it, screamed as if Patty Ryan raved at the door. Then Leon came in and showed us, and everyone wanted to work the dumbbell, even Mother. Leon marched around and showed off. He looked, see the conquering hero comes, all over. I never felt worse about being made into a girl than I did that night. I couldn't sleep for excitement, and Mother said I might as well, for it would be at least one o'clock before they would round up in our meadow below the barn. All the neighbors were to shut up their stock, tie their dogs, or lead them with chains if they took them, so when the foxes were surrounded they could catch them alive and save their skins. I wondered how some of those chasing people, even Laddie, Leon, and Father, think of that, Father was going too. I wondered how they would have liked to have had something as much bigger than they were, as they were bigger than the foxes, chase them with awful noises, guns and dogs, and catch them alive to save their skins. No wonder I couldn't sleep. I guess the foxes wouldn't either, if they had known what was coming. Maybe hereafter the mean old things would eat rabbits and weasels, and leave the dorking roosters alone. May, Candace, and Miss Amelia were going to Deems to wait, 
and when the round-up formed a solid line, they planned to stand outside and see the sport. If they had been the foxes, maybe they wouldn't have thought it was so funny. But, of course, people just couldn't have even their pigs and lambs taken. We had to have wool to spin yarn for our stockings, weave our blankets and coverlids, and our Sunday winter dresses of white flannel, with narrow black crossbars, were from the backs of our own sheep, and we had to have ham to fry with eggs, and boil for Sunday night suppers, and bacon to cook the greens with. Of course it was all right. Before it was near daylight, I heard Laddie making the kitchen fire, so father got right up, Leon came down, and all of them went to the barn to do the feeding. I wanted to get up, too, but mother said I should stay in bed until the house was warm, because if I took more cold I'd be sick again. At breakfast, May asked father about when they should start for the deems to be ahead of the chase, and he said by ten o'clock at least, because a fox driven mad by pursuit, dogs, and noise was a very dangerous thing, and a bite might make high the same thing as a mad dog. He said our back barn door, opening from the threshing floor, would afford a fine view of the meat. But Candace, May, and Miss Amelia wanted to be closer. I might go with them if they would take good care of me, and they promised to. But when the time came to start, there was such a queer feeling inside me. I thought maybe it was more fever, and with Mother would be the best place for me. So I said I wanted to watch from the barn. Father thought that was a capital idea because I would be on the east side, where there would be no sun and wind, and it would be perfectly safe. Also, I really could see what was going on better from that height than on the ground. The sun was going to shine, but it hadn't peeped above Deem's straw stack when Father on his best saddle horse, and Laddie on Floss, rode away, their eyes shining, their faces red, their blood pounding so it made their voices sound excited and different. Leon was to go on foot, Father said he would ride a horse to death. He just grinned, and never made a word of complaint. Seemed funny for him. "'I was over having a little confidential chat with my horse last night,' he said, "'and next year we'll be in the chase, and we'll show you how to take fences and cut curves. Just you wait.' "'Leon, don't build so on that horse,' wailed Mother. "'I'm sure that money was stolen like ours, and the owner will claim it. I feel it in my bones.' "'Ah, shucks,' said Leon. "'That money is mine. He won't either.' When they started, Father took Leon behind him to ride as far as the county line. He said he would go slowly, and it wouldn't hurt the horse. But Leon slipped off at Hood's, and said he'd go with their boys, so Father let him. Because light as Leon was, both of them were quite a load for one horse. Laddie went to ride with the princess. We could see people moving around in Prior's barnyard when our men started. Candace washed, Miss Amelia wiped the dishes, May swept, and all of them made the beds, and then they went to Deem's while I stayed with Mother. When she thought it was time, she bundled me up warmly, and I went to the barn. Father had the east door standing open for me, so I could sit in the sun, hang my feet against the warm boards, and see every inch of our meadow where the meat was to be. I was really too warm there, and had to take off the scarf, untie my hood, and unbutton my coat. It was a trifle muddy, but the frost had not left the ground yet. The sparrows were singing fit to burst, so were the hens. I didn't care much for the music of the hen, but I could see she meant well. She liked her nest quite as much as the red velvet bird with black wings, or the bubbly yellow one. And as for baby chickens, from the first peep they beat a little naked, blind, wobbly tree bird. 
So any hen had a right to sing for joy, because she was going to be the mother of a large family of them. A hen had something to sing about all right, and so had we, when we thought of poached eggs and fried chicken. When I remembered them, I saw that it was no wonder the useful hen warbled so proud-like. But that was all nonsense, for I don't suppose a hen ever tasted poached eggs, and surely she wouldn't be happy over the prospect of being fried. Maybe one reason she sang was because she didn't know what was coming. I hardly think she'd be so tuneful if she did. Sometimes the geese, shut in the barn, raised an awful clatter, and the horses and cattle complained about being kept from the sunshine and fresh air. You couldn't blame them. It was a lovely day, and the big upper door the pleasantest place. I didn't care if the fox-hunters never came. There was so much to see, hear, and smell. Everything was busy making signs of spring, and one could become tired of ice and snow after a while, and so hungry for summer, that those first days, which were just hints of what was coming, were almost better than the real thing when it arrived. Bud perfume was stronger than last week. Many doves and bluebirds were calling. And three days more of such sunshine would make cross-country riding too muddy to be pleasant. I sat there thinking. Grown people never know how much children do think. They have so much time, and so many bothersome things to study out. I heard it behind me, a long, wailing, bellowing roar, and my hood raised right up with my hair. I was in the middle of the threshing floor in a second, in another at the little west door, cut into the big one, opening it a tiny crack to take a peep and see how close they were. I could see nothing, but I heard a roar of dreadful sound steadily closing in a circle around me. No doubt the mean old foxes wished then they had let the dorking roosters alone. Closer it came, and more dreadful. Never again did I want to hear such sounds coming at me, even when I knew what was making them. And then, away off, beyond priors and hoods and overs, I could see a line of tiny specks coming toward me, and racing flying things that must have been people on horses, riding back and forth to give the foxes no chance to find a hiding place. No chance. Laddie and the princess, Mr. Pryor and father, and all of them were after the bad old foxes, and they were going to get them, because they'd have no chance, not with a solid line of men with raving dogs surrounding them, and people on horseback racing after them. No, the foxes would wish now that they had left the pigs and lambs alone. In that awful roaring din they would wish, oh, how they would wish, they were birds and could fly, fly back to their holes like the Bible said they had, where maybe they liked to live. And no doubt they had little foxes there, that would starve when their mammies were caught alive, to save their skins. To save their skins, I could hear myself breathe, and feel my teeth click, and my knees knock together. And then, oh dear, there they came across our cornfield, two of them. And they could fly, almost. At least you could scarcely see that they touched the ground. The mean old things were paying up for the pigs and lambs now. Through the back fence, across the road, straight toward me they came. Almost red backs, nearly white beneath, long flying tails, beautiful pointed ears, and long tongues, fire red, hanging from their open mouths, their sleek sides pulsing, and that awful din coming through the woods behind them. One second, the first paused to glance toward either side, and threw back its head to listen. What it saw and heard showed it. I guess then it was sorry it ever took people's ham and their greens and their blankets, and it could see and hear that it had no chance to save its skin.
Oh, Lord, dear Lord, help me, I prayed. It had to be me. There was no one else. I never had opened the big doors. I thought it took a man. But when I pushed with all my might, and maybe if the hairs of our heads were numbered, and the sparrows counted, there would be a little mercy for the foxes. I asked for help. Maybe I got it. The doors went back, and I climbed up the ladder to the haymow a few steps and clung there, praying with all my might. Make them come in. Dear Lord, make them come in. Give them a chance. Help them to save their skins, O Lord. With a whiz and a flash, one went past me, skimmed the cider press, and rushed across the hay, then the other. I fell to the floor, and the next thing I knew, the doors were shut, and I was back at my place. I just went down in a heap, and leaned against the wall, and shook, and then I laughed and said, Thank you for helping with the door. And the foxes, the beautiful little red and white foxes, they've got their chance, they'll save their skins. They'll get back to their holes and their babies. Praise the Lord. I knew when I heard that come out that it was exactly like my father said it when Amos heard was redeemed. I never knew father to say it so impressively before, because Amos had been so bad, people really were afraid of him. And father said if once he got started right, he would go at it just as hard as he had gone at wrongdoing. I suppose I shouldn't have said it about a fox. when there were the dorkings and ham and white wool dresses and all that. But honestly, I couldn't remember that I cared particularly whether Amos Hurd was redeemed or not. He was always lovely to children. While I never in all my life had wanted anything worse than I wanted those foxes to save their skins, I could hear them pant like run out dogs. And I could hear myself, and I hadn't been driven from my home and babies, maybe, and chased miles and miles either. End of chapter 12, part 1.